Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York courts. I'm John Carr. In today's Diversity Dialogue segment, we're honored to have as our guest Eileen D. Millett, Counsel to the Office of Court Administration. Eileen, congratulations on your new position as OCA Counsel, and, and thanks for joining us today. Let's just start at the beginning. Uh, where do you come from? Tell me about your childhood, your parents, where you grew up. Okay, well, I was born in Brooklyn. I am the oldest daughter of immigrant parents, a Cuban mother and a dad from Trinidad and Tobago. My mother arrived here from Cuba speaking no English, um, coming through Ellis Island, actually, and being detained at the infirmary there. And my dad arrived in this country in his mid-20s, already a pharmacist, but yearning really to be a doctor. And after his credentials were not recognized, he started all over again, getting his Bachelor of Science in two and a half years because he was a man on a mission. And he left his adopted country to go to his second adopted country, France, to study medicine when I was about three years old. Holy cow, that's great. For the next six years... Um, by that time, my mother had had a, two more children. She, I had another uh, sister who was a year and a half younger than I, and then a, another sibling that was about three months old. And so we saw my dad at holidays and, um, and obviously in the summertime. Um, not always, because travel was very expensive, and my mom was the only one working as a bookkeeper for the IRS. But at the end of that six-year period, when my dad returned home for good, He hung out his shingle, and our living room became his office after he took the exam for foreign medical grads, and we became his answering service, and the rest, as they say, is history as far as he goes. That's fantastic. So your father's medical degree was not recognized? Well, anyone who graduates from a foreign medical school is required to take something called the ECFMG, which is the exam for foreign medical grads. And despite the fact that in Paris it's a six-year program and, and there is a great deal of emphasis on clinical work, so you're with patients right away, which is not the way that our medical education works in this country, although it's changing, they, they didn't recognize uh, any of, of you know, what he did without him taking that exam for foreign medical grads. But my dad was you know, very good at test-taking, so that was not a problem for him. And he was very successful in that, and then he took his boards in both New York and New Jersey and opened up his practice in Brooklyn before ultimately my parents moved to Long Island. But he kept his practice in Brooklyn with the idea that he always espoused that poor people needed doctors too. And so he opened up a practice in Bed-Stuy, and he had a solo practice and then a partnership practice with another doctor, and he was he was always working and always busy. As a matter of fact, when he was in doing his residency and internship at Harlem Hospital, my mother would get us dressed up and we would go have dinner with him in the doctor's dining room because otherwise we never saw him. Um, so a little bit about how I came to be. Wow. My, my guess is there was a significant emphasis on education in your family. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for my dad, there could be no other profession than medicine. And so he was terribly, terribly disappointed when I told him that I was going to study law. When did that happen? What, what, what made you think of the law? Well, I was, um, I'll tell you, I think I was really influenced by my maternal great-grandfather, a man that I never knew. But I listened to my mother tell stories about him arriving in this country and really becoming instantly very successful, patenting a medicine, 
which he called De Boog's Rheumatica, and started selling it. Um, he was then accused of practicing medicine without a license, and my mother always told the story about him defending himself against the charge and prevailing. So I always assumed he was a lawyer, but later found out that he really was not. He was just a confident, educated man. He was the headmaster of a school, but he was my inspiration. And so when I decided to cast aside my father's desire for me to go toward medicine, I was, thought I was pursuing what my great-grandfather did. Um, he was a man who was really always, always an inspiration to my mother. He's archived at the Schomburg, where artifacts of his time and his leadership, uh, his becoming rather the leader of South and Central America and the provinces of the West Indies, in the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Really? What was his name? His name was John Sidney Dubou. Hmm. Small d-e, capital B-O-U-R-G. But John Sidney is uh, memorialized in the Garvey books. Um, he was a mulatto man, very fair with blue eyes. Um, my grandmother, my mother was his favorite, and so she talked about him all the time. Um, but Garby dubbed him the white man in his in his books. And <laughs> as I said, all of this is archived at the Schomburg. Huh. Now, how did you get into environmental law? Was it was that your intention upon going to Syracuse Law? <laughs> Very interesting. So that was completely by accident. You know, like I think many people of that time in the late mid to late seventies, I I really thought I want to be a litigator. I want to be on my feet. Um, you know, people don't remember Perry Mason anymore, but that was the inspiration for people of a certain era. Um, I left being the DA's office where I did have the opportunity to try cases and be on my feet um, to apply for an opening in real estate financing in the Attorney General's office. Um, I was dissuaded from joining the Real Estate Financing Bureau because I was told that the Bureau was in a state of flux. They had just fired the head of the Bureau. But they had this very interesting, you know, position that was a hybrid where I would be prosecuting cases on the criminal prosecution side of the office because the, they had just passed a law making it a felony to possess, deal in, or transport hazardous waste without a permit. And they wanted somebody who would be willing to bring those cases um, and then to do the civil remediation on the environmental side of the office, so two different sides of the office, two different bosses. You know, what could be what could be more interesting than that to somebody who's up for a challenge? Now, uh, when, when was this that you were in the Attorney General's office? In the 80s, mid-80s. So the uh, AG was probably Bob Abrams? That was Bob Abrams, absolutely. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, as a, as a black woman, did you face any particular hurdles in law school or along the road to becoming uh, an attorney? You know, I really always felt that in in law, which is, I think, a profession that's still very male-dominant, um, I really felt that it was more my gender than my race that was the issue. Um, so being a black and a Latina woman with a mother who always said, I am a proud black Cuban, and would repeat the phrase, tengo un país y una bandera, I have a country, I have a flag. Obviously, I grew up hearing three languages, French, because that was my dad's language that he spoke with a mother and grandmother who were from Dominica, and a mother who was, Spanish was her first language. So I heard those languages and 
those were that was my surroundings but I always felt that it's really more being a woman in a field that's still very male um, that could be the source of making one feel excluded I never forget walking into the locker room of Syracuse Law School and feeling like I'd walked into the Green Bay Packers locker room um, where we really didn't really have a female bathroom except off of the library, um, really like an afterthought. So a very, very different kind of environment. It's funny, well, not funny, but interesting is how much of the civil rights battle revolved around public accommodations. Ah. Bathrooms. <laughs> yes, and, and even things like being able to use your own name. I mean, I remember my father always encouraging us, as I said, I'm the oldest, but I have four siblings. There are four girls and, and one boy, but three sisters and a brother. My father always encouraged the girls to keep our own name, to have a profession. You had to have a profession. You had to have your, you, had to, you should keep your own name, but you couldn't, and your, your husband always also was going to be a professional, but you couldn't make more money than him. That, those were my father's rules. Hmm. Hmm. Now, of course, you parlayed your experience into a partnership at Phillips Neiser, a major law firm in Manhattan. Um, what was the, what was the road the partnership like? You think you, you think it was you think you think you faced the same hurdles as everyone else or different ones? Well, you know, again, I, again, I would say very much the same sort of thing that um, that one one finds in many many venues in the legal profession, which is that it, it's still a very male-dominated position. You know, the stock and trade of, of, private, of private practice um, is really trolling for dollars on a daily basis, um, which can present quite a challenge. And again, depending upon what sort of case you may be pitching a client for, they're going to be much more comfortable with someone who looks like them and the people doing the interviewing are typically going to be male and white, um, so sometimes you are fighting an uphill battle. But mm. I can't say that those are any things that really held me back. Um, again, being inspired by my great-grandfather and my grandmother, who was also somewhat of an inspiration, my mother's mother, um, I didn't think any, any challenge was so, uh, and no bar was too high for me. Hmm. Now, and any lawyer listening to this is going to, going to want to know why someone would give up a partnership at Phillips Neiser to join the court system. Well, as I, as I said a moment ago, you know, the stock and trade of private practice is trolling for dollars on a daily basis, which really can present quite a challenge. Um, and then depending upon where you are in the pecking order, the politics of origination, every lawyer will know that, who really brought in the client, what is the split going to be, how are you going to share things equitably. You know, some firms are more transparent than others. Some, you, you know, Obviously, you have, regardless of your contract, there are always going to be questions about how are you going to be compensated at the end of the year and how that works. Um, I think that some of us, myself included, get to the point where we just decide, let's put that aside and do something that is really less challenging in that way so we can we, we know what we're making and we're not worried about um, you know will this year be a good year or will it not so mm -hmm. to be offered the position to become the highest ranking non-judicial person in the court system was really an honor it was an honor to be selected 
and really in the last several months has been a distinct pleasure to work with some very brilliant minds that I really never expected to encounter. You know, the private practice world has a view of itself as being somewhat superior. Um, I think that people in the private practice world would be taken aback by the likes of people like Judge Lawrence Marks and John McConnell, and even some of the people I've encountered in counsel's office who have been here for quite a long time, who really are stellar in the work that they do and are unsung heroes, really. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoy and relish the challenge of ferreting out these the cutting-edge issues that I deal with every day and doing something on a daily basis, almost on an hourly basis, that is consequential. Not something I would have encountered in private practice. You mentioned the cutting-edge issue. So what exactly does the Council for OCA do? Well, our responsibilities are very, very broad. So we, for example, and people don't know this, all of the rules of the court are made by the administrative board of the courts. That's the chief judge and the four presiding justices of the four departments in New York, first, second, third, and fourth. We are really the the law office for the unified court system. Um, And all of the rules that appear in in the, the rules of the chief judge, the rules of the chief administrative judge, are all made by that governing body, if you will, the administrative board. They meet approximately every six weeks, and it is those those entities or individuals that I just named, as well as the chief administrative judge, and I am their advisor. So you have those six people in the room, and myself, the seventh, as their advisor, making, I'll use the word I used a moment ago, decisions that are consequential in the court system. As an example, Bar Association came to us approximately two two or three months ago, actually probably less, and said, we've received a great deal of attention to the on the application for admission to practice um, of the mental health question, and we are proposing that that question be eliminated. And of course, is this a question of the character and fitness folks who are interviewing, and New York requires an in-person interview? It's part of the question that deals with drug abuse and alcohol abuse. I think they had to give some very considered thought to how we would address that particular question, and would we eliminate it or would we find an alternative? And we embraced the second pass, and I think it was the correct pass. But that's an example of the sort of thing that we do was announced in the State of the Judiciary mm-hmm. by Judge De Fiori, and I think roundly applauded by the State Bar Association for the speed with which we acted and the result that we that we came up with, which we think is going to be a bellwether and will be followed, New York always leading by example, will again, I think, do so in this area. Hmm, that's great. Now, how, how many attorneys do you supervise? I supervise, believe it or not, 17 people um, and a paralegal, and of course there is additional support staff, and we handle just about everything that you can imagine would come into a law office. We represent judges and non-judicial employees. When judges are sued in their official capacity, of course, they're represented by the Attorney General. Um, We represent the court system before the Division of Human Rights and the EEOC Commission. We draft and prosecute disciplinary proceedings against non-judicial personnel. 
we have a legislative branch of our council's office in Albany, and they they look at and obviously I approve the court system's legislative program, comment on legislate legislation that involves the courts. Uh, sometimes we'll propose new rules and legislation that affect practice and procedure in the courts. And we also have our attorneys who are the advisory council to many, many committees. Um, uh, the committee, for example, to look at um, um, judicial conduct, um, family court, uh, criminal justice. Um, we draft administrative and procedural rules that affect the court system. Um, judicial ethics comes up to the purview of counsel's office. Rules of judicial conduct come after the, under the purview of counsel's office. So as I said, it is a very, very broad, um, very consequential office. Anything that has to do with document production or FOIL comes to us. Anything that has to do with contracts for goods and services comes to us. Um, the consequential issues that you, you mentioned a minute ago, of course, modernization or consolidation, um, you know, the, the order of the day, everybody is on board with doing our best to, to see that get at least first passage and beyond. Um, criminal justice reform, I, don't, I need not talk about discovery and bail reform. We just hired a new deputy for criminal justice um, who has dug right in and um, will take the bull by the horns in ensuring that the court system gets it right. The legislature, as you know, passed that legislation with not a great deal of input from the courts or from prosecutors' offices. Um, there have been a couple of little hurdles that people have had to jump over. We're doing our best to smooth the way. Um, rent law overhauls are another big challenge that the court system will face. E-filing, I, I could go on, but I think you get the flavor. It, it sounds like you deal with more diverse issues in a day than you would in a year in private practice. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I, I say to people, you know, my job is both exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. <laughs> it's like riding a roller coaster where you get to the end of the ride, and even though you've been terrified and exhilarated, you can't wait to come back the next day and start all over again. That's how I would describe it. That's as good as it gets. <laughs> are, there, are there any overriding goals you want to achieve in this position going forward? Well, you know... John, my goal is to make this law office, you know, among government law offices, Corporation Council enjoys a stellar reputation. And so my overarching goal is to make Council's office one of the premier law offices in government. I mean, we have, as I said, 17 people. It's not enough to do the breadth and depth of what we, we work on. I mean, to, to go into an area that you haven't asked me, but what, what do I least enjoy about this job? Having insufficient time for that in-depth research and reflection. Um, it's one thing to ask somebody else to do the hands-on work, but it's another thing to be able to do it yourself and to have the time to digest the cases, the precedent, the law, and then write a proposal where you've had an opportunity to do some really in-depth thought about something. You know, at times I feel like a dilettante. I'm only skimming the surface, um, but there just isn't sufficient time to do more. Sure, sure. Now, Chief Judge often speaks of the importance of diversity in the workforce. How is her mission being carried out internally? What are we doing about it? 
Well, I know that we have set up, for example, interview panels. Um, I think that that it has been one of the ways that the court system has sought to ensure that we have we interview a, a diverse population. Um, I have mixed feelings about the use of panels for for the kind of pointed, focused work that we do in counsel's office. But I would say that is that is a vehicle that has has given us an added probably indicia of credibility uh, because as long as people are putting in their applications, there will be some assurance that they are going to be treated fairly. They're asked the same questions. They're provided the same amount of time in the interview process, um, things of that nature. At least they're in the game. Yes. For someone listening to this podcast or reading the transcript, what would you tell them about working for the New York State court system? Should they do it? Well, I, would, I, I have to really speak more, John, for counsel's office, and I would say that they are an incredibly stellar, diverse, hard-working core group of folks who not only enjoy their work, but who really dig in. And counsel's office, you have very, very little turnover. I mean, as you know, I'm new in this job, and I said we have a new deputy for criminal justice. The only reason we have that new deputy position, really not a new position, but a new individual in that position, is because his predecessor left to join the bench. Um, We have a new deputy counsel for litigation, and the only reason that she's here is because her predecessor left because he felt it was time for him to retire. So I'm telling a story by telling you that People don't leave counsel's office. They come here mm-hmm. and they stay because they enjoy the work, they enjoy the environment, and they enjoy making a difference and doing something that's consequential. That's certainly been my experience with the counsel's office. There's very little changeover, and people have been there for decades and decades. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And that, that's, not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it speaks volumes for what the, the, what the positions mean to the office. I think you're right. Eileen, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate your... Thank you, John. Okay. Thanks for listening to Amici. You'll find all of our recent podcasts on the Court Systems website at www.nycourts.gov. Most are also available in the iTunes podcast library and on SoundCloud. If you have a suggestion for an Amici podcast, please let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669. That's 518-453-8669. In the meantime, stay tuned.